This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on anthrax. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm clinical director at BMJ. Anthrax is an infection caused by bacillus anthracis. It can affect the skin, lungs, intestine, and injection sites, causing everything from small necrotic skin lesions to a serious systemic illness. To tell us more about anthrax, we have on the line Dr. Ali Hassoun, infectious disease specialist at the Alabama Infectious Disease Center in the USA. So Ali, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking you, what exactly is anthrax? Anthrax is a gram-positive bacillus that can be seen or found in different areas, but the most common place that we can get in contact with is actually animal, which can be a carrier for this type of bacteria. And how would you recognize an affected patient? The most common presentation that you can see in general is the cutaneous anthrax, where in these patients, if a farmer, for example, get in contact with animal hides or any other person, they develop like a numb healing ulcer uh, and then scar with necrotic base that can have significant swelling or edema around it. Um, usually, with time, can cause lymph node enlargement or swelling and pain. The other method of presentation, and that can happen, for example, if someone eats uncooked meat, can get a gastrointestinal involvement. And that can either present with pharyngeal presentation with pain and soreness and swelling, or the more common is the nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain. And that, again, as it develops, it can progress to more abdominal pain and symptoms of what we call mesenteric adenitis, where they have a little bit more uh, worsening uh, fever, associated pain with eating, and diarrhea as well. The third presentation, which we've seen with bioterrorism, uh, is inhalational anthrax. And that's more associated with bioterrorism like happened in 2001 when some powders was mailed to individuals that was laced with spores. And as you inhale the spore, the initial phase, you can get some cough, mild shortness of breath, flu-like symptoms, myalgias. And then the second phase of that, as it disseminates into the mediastinal lymph node, it can cause more shortness of breath, bleeding, more sepsis symptoms, and then possible meningitis. The fourth form is the one where associated with IV drug user, most commonly in heroin users, where it can contaminate the needles. And as they introduce it through the skin, it develops in a way similar to the cutaneous anthrax, but it's usually no ulceration, it's more pain and edema and redness, and then disseminate to the lymph node with lymph node uh, swelling and pain. And in all these forms, if it starts disseminating, it can present as 
meningitis or septic picture and hypotension and people get with organ dysfunction, for example. Okay, thank you. That's that's really helpful. And if you do have a patient who has been diagnosed with anthrax or, or suspected of, ha- of having anthrax, do they need to be isolated, I wonder? In general, uh, in infection control measures, you always need to follow the standard precautions, meaning, you know, you wash your hands, you wear gloves. If there is any specific drainage, you need to put gowns on. In cases where there's chances of aerosols and chances of inhalation, you need to do what are called droplet isolation, meaning specific mask to reduce that chances of exposure. Can you tell us more about droplet isolation? What exactly does that mean? So in general, the droplet isolation would be really putting surgical mask when you enter the room or you will be in near contact with the patient. You really don't need a negative pressure room or specific N95 mask. It's more the regular surgical mask in there. Okay, great. Thank you. And do you need to refer patients typically, or could the generalist doctor manage them themselves? The moment you have suspicion of anthrax, you really need to be in direct contact with your local health authority or department of health, as well as consult with an infectious disease specialist and a microbiologist to get a faster, more rapid uh, diagnosis, as well as management of this patient need to be as soon as uh, possible and try to trace if there is any other contact or if there is any other infection to contain and reduce the chances of spread to others. Okay, thank you. And is it a reportable disease? Yeah, so anthrax is a reportable disease. And again, Anytime you suspect of anthrax, you need to directly contact the local health authorities uh, to inform them of that suspicion. Okay, thank you. Let's move on to diagnosis and differential diagnosis in particular. How can you tell anthrax from its common differential diagnosis? The most important thing in diagnosis is keeping suspicion uh, of the type of infection depending on the demographic and the exposure of the patient. It really taking a good history and good physical exam to try to think about anthrax. The differential diagnosis could be very wide because the presentation can be from influenza-like infection to acute bacterial meningitis or pneumonia, for example. The most important part is really that patient exposure and where that exposure happens. To make a definite diagnosis, you're gonna need cultures from the blood. If it's cutaneous, you need to swab from the area of the alteration. If it's inhalational, in addition to the blood, you need a respiratory sample. If it is in the, for example, you think the patient is septic or have meningitis, 
In both these cases, you need the spinal fluid to be sent for further eval, including cultures, but also PCRs that can be helpful to uh, make the diagnosis. If you really don't have these available, some can use what we call a protective antigen antibody level, but these can take time and you're really not easy available everywhere. So the cultures and the PCR is the most important in making the diagnosis in addition to your clinical signs and symptoms. Okay, thank you. And are there any common pitfalls in the diagnosis or management of this disease? I think the most important thing is in these patients, you're going to need, even though anthrax is very rare, you don't see it as common in other infectious diseases, you're going to need to put it in the back of your mind in any of these patients that have certain risk factors. Because if you don't, you're definitely going to misdiagnose and give inappropriate antibiotics for these patients. Okay, thank you. That's, that's really helpful. What have we missed amongst the questions I've asked you so far? Is there any other important points that you think we should get across? I think the treatment part, the, even though you consult with infectious disease specialists and the local health authorities, but we always, in any patient who's infectious and septic, you need to start antibiotics as soon as possible. And that usually includes if the patient is septic with meningitis, usually three different drugs like ciprofloxacin and with that, merepinum, as well as additional what we call protein synthesis inhibitor like lunisolid. These are the backbone of the treatment in those who are septic or have meningitis, for example. And then if it is more or less cutaneous or with no sepsis, you can actually de-escalate and have less coverage accordingly. But antibiotic starting is very important. Okay. Thank you very much, Ali. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful, and we hope that you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice or BMJ Learning and look at the content on this and other infectious diseases. Thank you once again. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and rate us on iTunes.